I want to introduce our, uh, our uh, speaker this morning. Uh, Bo Cogbill uh, is friends with Zach. He told me to not, ho- please don't hold that against him. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he went to seminary with Zach and met him there. And, uh, and he and Mark Toombs, Mark actually was kind enough, uh, is, is uh, the, the head pastor there and is going to be doing our communion this morning. Bo and Mark are co-pastors at one of our sister churches in the PCA, Christ Covenant Church in Mesquite. Um, what an exciting thing. You guys have heard Zach mention this before. It's a cross-cultural church in Mesquite. Mark actually speaks Spanish, and, and, and they have a large Hispanic population. And I love the, uh, the kingdom representation that that shows, that, that the church is people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we thank them for the work that they're doing there. They actually meet on Sunday nights. And so they even extended it. it they wouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. If you guys say you come back uh, from a long weekend... And, uh, and you want to come worship. They worship on Sunday nights. Look them up online, and, and they'd love to have you come and join them there. So we're going to turn the floor over to Bo. Bo, thank you for being here. Well, good morning. I'm not used to bright lights. Uh, <laughs> I feel a little probably more famous than I should right now. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, it is always a joy to gather uh, with a sister congregation on the Lord's Day, and it's always a privilege uh, to be able to open up God's Word together. Uh, as um, I don't remember, yeah, Jake. Uh, as Jake said, we've only been we, we had a couple beers, and you know I can't remember anything after that. No, <laughs> um, we've only been in the PCA for about a year and a half. Uh, but I think I can speak for Mark and just say that it has been such an encouragement uh, to our little congregation down there in Mesquite to see uh, the love uh, that the PCA has for the church, for Christ, and for uh, his mission to seek and save the lost. I'm thankful uh, to the session. I'm thankful to Zach and those guys for inviting us to be able to share the gospel together, to worship together, and I'm thankful for a pulpit. Um, no, you... That, they had to dust this thing off, I hear. Um, so I'm thankful for it. Um, I know y'all are in Amos, uh, but when I told Zach that I thought that was some sort of cookie or something, um, he said to stay out of Amos and just preach over John. Uh, so that's actually what we're going to be doing uh, this morning. A couple of years ago, our congregation had the privilege of walking through uh, the John, John's gospel. Um, and part of me kind of wishes we were getting to do that again uh, with you all, but for this morning, an overview will have to do. I figured uh, what we could do is we could spend the morning looking at the big picture themes of John, uh, and hopefully that will encourage you to dig into uh, that wonderful gospel a little bit more on your own, um, or even better with a couple of friends. Um, You would think that if you're going to get an overview of John's gospel that you would actually start at the beginning, uh, but that's not how John rolls. Uh, This morning, we are going to jump to the end of the book because it's at the end of the Gospel of John that he gives us a lens through which we are to read his entire book. Uh, And it's always safer to take the author's reason for writing than trying to come up with your own. So if you are willing and if you are able, I invite you to please stand with me for the reading of God's word from John chapter 20 and 21. Uh, We're taking two verses from two different chapters, so it may just be easier for you to follow along in your worship order. Uh, Hear God's word from John 20, uh, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And now 21, verse 24 through 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word, and may he grant us all the grace to trust and obey it. And all the church said, amen. Please be seated. I was talking to a guy at work uh, a few months back, and the movie The Usual Suspects came up. Now, I won't ruin that movie for you if you haven't seen it, and I definitely can't in good conscience recommend that you see that movie, Um, but the movie revolves around a mysterious character named Kaiser Soze. He's almost an omnipresent character. Everybody knows who he is, and yet no one knows who he is at the same time. And it isn't until the end of The Usual Suspects where something happens that allows the viewer to have an insight into the movie that no one else in the movie has, and therefore you're able to reinterpret the movie rightly. Now, obviously, The Usual Suspects and John's Gospel aren't exact parallels, um, but John does take a similar approach in his Gospel. Uh, He tells story after story about this Jesus guy. And then at the end of the book, John tells the hearer why he chose those particular stories and what their reaction should be. And so just like the reveal at the end of The Usual Suspects causes you to want to re-watch the movie with your new lens, so too my hope is that by giving you the lens through which to read John's gospel up front, you may be able to go back again and again with John's intention in the background. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We'll look at, one, the content of John's writing. Um, What does John write about? Uh, We'll look at the purpose of John's writing. Why does he write what he did? And then we'll look at uh, the effect of John's writing. How should we respond to what he writes? So first, we'll look at the content of John's writing. If you've got your Bible open still, Uh, Look with me at John 20, verse 30, and the first half of verse 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. And so we see here from John that there were many other things that Jesus did, but John chose these things specifically. And we're going to touch on a similar theme toward the end, but I want to see at the outset that as great as Jesus is in these Gospels, Jesus is even greater than we can imagine. Reading the book of John reveals someone saying and doing things that are unimaginable. And yet anyone who's read this gospel knows that to be true. But John is saying here that to those who have already gone through his gospel, that however amazed they are now, they don't know the half of it. You can almost hear John asking, you think you're amazed with Jesus now? You have no idea how amazing he is. 
You think he's worthy of your worship? Now you have no idea how worthy he is. You think he's majestic? You think he's loving? You think he's gracious and powerful and wise? You have no idea how majestic and loving and gracious and powerful and wise he is. So yes, while Jesus said and did more than we could hope to imagine, because of John's gospel, he is not unimaginable. John has told his story. He lays his gospel out very simply. John has the prologue that we're all pretty familiar with, where Jesus is set out as the eternal logos, the supreme wisdom, the great and only constant in the universe, God himself becoming flesh. And then John starts Act 1, the book of signs. And then he spends 12 chapters telling us about some amazing things that Jesus does and says. Jesus begins his ministry by turning water into wine at a wedding feast. He clears the temple. He looks into the Samaritan woman's heart at a well, and then he heals an official's son who was near death. He heals another man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and then he feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves, and he walks on water in the midst of a storm. Jesus heals a man born blind on the Sabbath, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's anointed by Mary, and then he enters triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey colt. These are just a few things that John writes about Jesus in his first 12 chapters. And then he embarks on his second act, the book of glory, where he spends chapters 13 through 20 showing Jesus preparing his followers for their new life after his suffering, death, and glorification. In the book of glory, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he gives them a new commandment that they should have known, and he makes promises to them. He explains to them that he is the true vine and that they must remain united in him. He prepares them for their future by explaining to them the persecution that will, will come to them by nature of their identification with him. But he promises to give them a helper someone to comfort them until their sorrow turns to joy. He prays for them, and then he's handed over to be crucified. And he dies, and he's buried. John concludes the gospel with the greatest sign yet, Jesus' resurrection. John then assures his readers that even though it may be hard to believe, what he is telling them is the truth, and it doesn't even begin to explain the half of how amazing this Jesus is. So as you can see, if you'll dig into this wonderful gospel, you'll be confronted with wonder upon wonder. John's gospel is filled with calling stories, with recognition stories, witness stories, conflict stories, miracle stories, passion stories, resurrection stories, and even post-resurrection stories. John's language is beautiful. You'll encounter amazing symbolism as Jesus is portrayed by images such as light and bread and 
water and wine and a vine and a shepherd. There are, as with any good stories, misunderstandings and clarifications and repetition. You'll see that the reality of Jesus brings great contrast between old and new, between light and darkness, life and death, temporary and eternal, disease and health, love and hate. So while John tells the same story as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he tells the story of Jesus very uniquely and very beautifully. And that brings us to our second point, why? If there were three Gospels already, why a fourth? Why does John write what he does? What is his purpose? Well, John tells us, Look at me, uh, look with me, not at me, at chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Repeat the last part of verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this gospel, and God preserved this gospel, and these stories, and these signs, so that you all might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But he didn't want you to just believe, to assent to the realities presented. He wanted you to believe so that by believing, you might have life in Jesus. John tells us that Jesus is the Logos so that we would believe that God isn't an impersonal, changeless force removed from his material creation and the pain that's there. But rather, Jesus is the Logos, the true God that is so deeply personal and involved in his creation that he took on flesh. He endured the pain of the cross that he might redeem all of creation, which is very good. John wanted us to know that wisdom isn't just a collection of timeless principles, but true wisdom is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ who became a fool so that those of us who are fools might become wise. That's why John tells us that Jesus is the eternal Logos, the supreme wisdom and God become flesh. He wants us to believe in a person. As our catechism said, the God-man, Jesus, rather than those alternative philosophies that are offered. John tells us that Jesus turns water into good, strong wine. Not just to tell us that alcohol is a blessing from God, but because John wants us to believe that Jesus had come to rescue God's people from spiritual drought and shame by ushering in joy and blessing. John told us that story so that we could see that the sign is pointing all who would believe toward a greater wedding feast that is to come, where all those who believe in Jesus might drink his cup of blessing. John tells us 
that Jesus clears the temple so that we might believe that Jesus wasn't like the religious elites who used God's house to promote their own glory. Instead, Jesus was doing a new thing. He was building a new temple, a true temple, by giving his body so that all who would believe would be built up into a spiritual house in him and that they might worship in spirit and truth. John gives us the story of the woman at Samaria so that we would believe that he came to save sinners and to give them eternal life. All sinners who come to Christ could now sing that wonderful song with us. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, He has found me, the one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings through His life. Now I'm saved. You see it. These stories aren't just there to give us something to do on Sundays or to give us a rule book to try to live up to. They're there so that you might trust Jesus and by trusting Jesus, have your life in Jesus. John tells us that Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years so that you would believe that Jesus is the power of God equal with the Father and sent by Him. Jesus fed the 5,000 so that you would believe that He is the bread of life and all who feed on His flesh will never hunger and they will be raised up on the last day to live forever. Jesus tells you, that he heals a man on the Sabbath so that you would believe that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And all who rest in him have eternal rest. John writes that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead so that you would believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes in him shall never die. Jesus is recorded as going into Jerusalem as a triumphant king so that you would all believe that Jesus entered into battle with death itself and conquered it so that all who trust him could have a king who defeated sin and death on their behalf. That's just a snippet of the first 12 chapters of John's book on Jesus' signs. John writes nine more chapters, concluding the gospel with the greatest sign, the resurrection of Jesus and his appearance to the disciples, before he comes full circle to telling us that these signs were written so that we might believe, and by believing, have the good life, eternal life in Christ. There's almost 16,000 words in John's gospel, and they're all there so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. He concludes those 16,000 words with these. Chapter 21, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We set out to cover three things this morning. The content of John's writing, what he writes about, to the purpose 
of John's writing. Why does he write what he does? And then finally, the effect of John's writing. How should we respond to what he writes? So we've covered one and two, and now we'll look at three. How should we respond to John's gospel? We've touched on the content of what he wrote, and we know that his purpose in writing was so that people would believe, but what effect should that have on you? Now that answer is somewhat two-pronged. If you don't believe, believe. That's the first prong. John 21, 24 says that John's testimony is true. Everything you see in his gospel is true. And if it is true, you must believe it. Why wouldn't you? They're wonderful stories. And they are all true. I was told I had to quote C.S. Lewis for you all this morning. And so, in the silver chair, uh, when the green lady trapped Eustace and Jill underground and tried to convince them their world wasn't true, Puddleglum, maybe my favorite character in all of C.S. Lewis's writings in this, well, maybe Aslan, okay, and then Puddleglum, uh, in a brief moment of realistic optimism, says defiantly, one word, ma'am. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars, and even Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than your supposed real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only real world. Well, ma'am, it strikes me as a pretty poor one indeed. And the funny thing is, if you're right and we're just babies making up a game, these four babies playing a game made a play world which licks your real world hollow. So while the silver chair is a good story and Puddleglum's response to the green lady is a good one, John's story is the greatest story ever told and it's true. Apart from Jesus, at the very best, your story is the play world. And at its worst, it's the black pit of a kingdom. But the story of Jesus Christ licks your version of the world hollow. And if you believe in him, you will live in his great story forevermore. So that's prong one. If you don't believe, believe. The second prong is for those of you who already believe. You already believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And by believing, you have the good life in His name. What effect should John's gospel have on you? Look at chapter 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Those of you that believe, you know that Jesus did and said all the things that John tells us. And you know that he did them and he said them for you. And you know that you've been written into this great story of creation and fall and redemption. John says you don't know the half of it. If every one of the things that Jesus did and said were to be written down, the whole world couldn't contain the books. 
Frederick Lehman, quoting an 11th century poet, said it like this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So while books are great and they are necessary, and John's gospel is great and necessary, the works of Jesus aren't only recorded in books. The works of Jesus Christ are being written through you. John says in chapter 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. No wonder, John says, that the whole earth couldn't contain the books of Jesus' work. God's still writing his story. He's filling the whole world with little living books with countless pamphlets with those who trust in Christ and he's been doing that for thousands of years so if John wrote his book so that people might believe in Jesus why are you writing your book why are you living your life is it so that people would Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in His name? Like the Jews before Jesus, people are looking for Messiahs. They are looking for Saviors. They are looking for the best story, for the good life. When people read your book, where will they think the good life is? Which stories do you tell? Will people watch? Will people listen? And will they think they can have the good life if they just make America great again? Or if your favorite sports team wins it all? Will they think they can have the good life by eating the right foods or drinking the right beer or marrying the right spouse or having successful children? Well, they think the good life is in nice homes away from those people. Is the good life in isolation and autonomy or that long-awaited retirement? Our life tells the story of where we think the good life is found. If we think America is where the good life is, then we will promote redemption by constantly telling the stories of our favorite party. If we think the good life is when our favorite team wins it all or our favorite player tears it up in fantasy football, then our lips will drip those stories. If we think the good life is in healthy living, we will post countless status updates about which foods or oils offer eternal life. If we think successful children is where the good life is, then we will be bogged down with activities every night of the week and running ourselves ragged, trying to write their good story. If we think wealth and retirement is the good life, then we will point people to the version of timeless truths that we think will get them there. If we think isolation and autonomy and leisure 
is the good life, then we will remove ourselves from community and we will seek after our family's unique version of self-indulgence. But if we think the good life is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then the stories we tell will be so drastically different. We will tell and show Jesus is the good life regardless of how little gluten or how much organic protein we consume. Only Christ offers the bread of life, and only Christ promises that those who feed on His flesh will never hunger again. Dark beer isn't the best drink that you could savor. Christ has the good wine. Christ has the blessing. Christ has the only wisdom that promises eternal life to all who are willing to become fools for Him. Christ shows us that the good life is in community with Him and His people. And if we believe that Christ is where the good life is, then tell those stories. John believed there was a good life to be had. And he believed that Eternal life was to be found not in the here and now only, but in the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John bore witness. He gave his testimony, not about himself, but about Jesus, so that you all would believe God's story and that it would be continually written through you. So I leave you with two questions this morning. Who is writing your story, and which story will you tell? Pray with me, please. Father, we come to you so grateful that you have chosen to preserve these stories for us. We thank you that they are not um, just fables or imagined things, but they are real. The Son of God became man in space-time history, and you have written all of history to point us to his coming. I pray for us. I pray that we would not believe the fiction around us, that the good life is in anything else or anyone else but Jesus himself. Grant us the grace of repentance. Grant us the desire to write His story, to tell His story that He and His goodness might drip from our lips and that others might taste and see that You are indeed good. We pray this for the glory of Jesus and for the good of Your church. Amen.